Before we start on this episode, we wanted to let you know that you can watch our Catalog and Cocktails episodes live with us every Wednesday via Zoom. Check the link in our channel bio for more information, and we hope you join us in the discussion in real time. Now, let's get back to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Catalog and Cocktails. It's your weekly live hangout, an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at data.world and joined by my co-host Juan. I am Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist at data.world and it is Wednesday afternoon. It is that time where we're going to take that quick break and uh, talk about data. And today we are having Drew Bannon, who's a co-founder of Fishtown Analytics. And Fishtown Analytics, they're the popular kid on the street. They're the folks behind DVT, and they're truly disrupting the whole data transformation process, the T and ETL. If you have not heard about DVT, you've literally been underneath the rock in this data world. So <laughs> Drew, how are you doing? Hey, Juan. I'm, I'm great. Um, thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to be speaking with you. Awesome. So just as a quick reminder, um, check out our new website, data.world slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter. We're the honest, no BS data and on LinkedIn. Give us reviews on Apple Podcasts and, and follow us on Spotify. Uh, we're, join our Slack community at slack.data.world and we want everybody to share your takeaways. So uh, let's kick this off. So again, what are we all drinking and what are we test toasting for today? Drew, how about you kick it off? Yeah, so um, this is a really great glass that my coworkers got uh, for me like three years ago. Um, there's there's three men on it, and they said that I'm this one, this one's Tristan, this one's Connor. It's called the Founders Cup, and we each have one. Um, so this is a special glass for me. Um, I'm not a huge cocktail drinker. Um, I actually prepared uh, a, like a I took out a bottle of beer from my fridge, and I thought. That's cataloging cocktails. I can't bring a yard's pale <laughs> ale. Um, so I just, I was saying before, I just mixed everything I could find in my uh, freezer and, and cabinet in here. Um, I guess I'll give you the rundown. So I, I'm a person who wants to like Negronis, but I do not at all like Negronis. I, I think I've never had like good vermouth and they're just not for me. Um, but I like the spirit of it, like spirit, get it? Um, and there's a, there's a good spirit called Capoletti. It's kind of like Campari. But it, it's, I'm sorry, it's a little bit like Campari and a little bit like Aperol, but like maybe sweeter. Um, so I put a little Capoletti in there and gin and topped it off with seltzer. And I had some like lemon simple syrup sitting around. Um, so I just threw it all in and it's nice. Good. I, I've fun. actually never tried Capoletti before. I, I like, uh, I like Negronis a lot and I like Campari and uh, I'll have to put that on the list to try. Yeah. It's really good. Well, I'm I'm the complete opposite right now. I am just sipping on one of my favorite rums. It's a Rum Sacapa 23. I think is the best rum in the world. And I think if I were to add anything to this, uh, um, it would be bad. So I'm enjoying just sipping on this rum today. How about you, Tim? That sounds pretty good. I am using this fiery ginger syrup from uh, Liber & Co. And I made like a, a ginger, spicy ginger rum fizz kind of thing. It's got some topo in there and some lime, uh, some uh, black rum. It's pretty tasty. So, All right. So what are we going to toast for? Somebody throw us something out. So I can tell you that yesterday was DBT's fifth birthday, uh, the five-year anniversary of its first uh, commit. So I'll drink to that. Uh, well, that, we definitely have to go toast that to that. That is fantastic. Cheers. 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 Well, um, 
post in the chat. Tell us where you're coming from. Uh, what are you drinking? What are you toasting for? But we got our warm up question, which is we always get this out. So if you could transform into any animal on the planet, what would it be and why? Tim. <laughs> I feel like this is a hard question. I, I, I like being a human. I don't, I don't know about you guys. So like when people ask this question, I feel like some people are so quick to be like, oh, I want to be an eagle or something like that. You know, like, yeah. uh, Mine is simple. I like to be a, yeah. a dog. You just take it easy and just sleep. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. I, I guess I would fly. I'd be an eagle. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have a, a tough relationship with this question in that when I think about animals, the one that comes to my mind first is a, is a snake. And I hate snakes. I'm viscerally afraid of snakes. <laughs> and they occupy such a central part of my brain that when you ask me that question, I immediately think like, oh, remember snakes? You're afraid of them. Um, and so I almost want to say, like, I want to better understand snakes. I don't want to be afraid of them. I don't think I'd want to be a snake forever, but if this is for like a day, if I could tolerate it, like to get inside the head of a snake and be a snake and, and be less afraid of them. That's a profound answer. Yeah. I mean, you Same have your damn great, life. You've thought about your cocktail, but you've thought about your answer here. But now let's talk about data. So my, my I, I want to get this off. And I was just talking to Drew before we were, we started this. Honest question. Why the heck did it take so long to come up with something like DBT? We've been doing ETL for over three decades. It's the same stuff over and over again. Why now? Why is it now finally happening? I want to know this. Yeah. Yeah. Please go. Two-part answer to this. I think the first one is there have been many versions of things like DBT um, before DBT even came into existence. I built one of these when I was an intern in college at a company called 8Tracks. It was like a Ruby script that generated SQL and it actually ran on Redshift. Um, we've spoken to tons of people and organizations who have built things like this before. And they're always ad hoc and sort of poorly maintained. And um, I think part of the electricity around DBT is that people like the concept and don't need to maintain it themselves, um, which, which is you know, uh, a sort of good place to be in if your core competency is not building data transformation tools. But I'll also say like, there is a bigger shift from sort of the ETL model that you described to this ELT model. I think that's totally powered by the data warehouse. And I would point to Redshift really primarily as being the original game changer. And then BigQuery and Snowflake, from our perspective, uh, increased in adoption after that. And now we see like Databricks in the mix too, and, and many others we can talk about. But I think ultimately like that's the thing. And specifically, if I was to point to something about the modern data warehouse, it is... Um, Flexibility, I think with a lot of old um, like appliance-based data warehouses, you would need to pre-provision a lot of storage and compute. And it made you want to do a lot more upfront transformation so that you didn't have spiky usage characteristics within your data warehouse that was very expensive and very rigid. So is it that our pipelines are becoming more complicated and that's why we need to have more tool. Like that's why we're realizing that we need to have more tools. Like make this for more first-class citizens. And just before, ETL wasn't as comp. I mean, data warehouses weren't as complicated. And, and then, are complicating ourselves too much? Like, does it really have to be this complicated? Because that's what scares me. I think the the most sophisticated thinker I've ever met on this topic was resistant to DBT. She was. Uh, one of like, from my perspective, the premier um, um, 
like I want to say SSIS developers on the planet. And everything I was talking about is new and innovative. She was like, I was doing that 15 years ago and I was doing an SSIS and I don't care about your tool. And I thought that's really fair. I respect your experiences. Um, I think it's always been complicated. I think that the shift happening these days is who does the work and how the work is done. Um, uh, very quick plug is that I talked a little bit about this at my talk at Coalesce last December. Um, we sort of are taking this work that used to be done by like a siloed group of human beings and a, and a siloed data um, sort of say database um, or, or data storage mechanism, whatever it might have been, and sort of federating it out and saying data is less of a service where you must request things that are very rigidly uh, specified. And instead, you have a lot more flexibility to say, let's just load all the event data in the warehouse and then we'll model it based on how important things feel. Um, and so it's a shift towards flexibility that in some ways makes things feel more complicated, but also people are doing stuff with DBT today that would be really challenging to do in sort of the older school ETL model on more legacy um, um, products. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, it's interesting how you position some of the, the paradigm shifts around you know, the modern data warehouses you're talking about it. And, you know, obviously this is all part of, uh, of a lot of new technologies that people are focusing on, whether it's cloud-based tech or just in general, more modern tech. You know, when you think about data lakes, data lake houses, next-gen data warehouses, there's so much terminology flying around, you know, what's, what's the right stack going forward? And you know, what, what is the, the quote unquote modern data stack? And, you know, how does things, how do things like DBT fit into that? Well, and, and, and I, I want the, the honest answer here, right? There's, yeah. I want to see what, what are your thoughts from the different things that you can go combine? Because look, we've, we've, we had last week a conversation about, with the, about data observability. We have with Monte Carlo, we talked about data testing and things like great expectations. At the end of the day, it's like, I could add all these other things into it. Like, do I need all these things? Like, what are the what are the best practices? How to start? How to grow? Like, I'd love your perspective on this. Yeah. Um, okay. My original answer was going to be that I think Shakespeare said, "There's no data warehouse, either good or bad. The thinking makes it so." Um, but I'll give you something more concrete. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That the question about uh, like. Uh, data, data warehouse, data lake, it's an, an interesting one. I think that there's a great, um, uh, I must say like unification happening where these lines, from my perspective, are starting to not really matter that much. If you use a tool like Snowflake, you can load data into Snowflake directly, uh, treat it kind of more like, I don't know if I'm gonna misuse the word appliance, but you can, you can push data into Snowflake and not care about what that means under the hood. You could also stage a lot of data in blob storage and then query it via Snowflake stages or external tables. And so like if the interface is you write SQL queries, it doesn't matter to me so much if you're selecting from a table or an external table or a stage, like it's kind of an implementation detail and you probably the thing to think about is like cost primarily. Are, are the um, trade-offs actually getting a little less severe, would you say? I think so. I mean, for I think this matters the most for very, very large data sets where the really awesome thing about Snowflake BigQuery Redshift is that if you are in sort of the 95% of companies with regards to like data volume, it really doesn't matter that much. Like it's gonna be cost-effective if you're paying like blob storage costs to store the data. And it's gonna be pretty cost-effective to query it unless you're doing like really interesting things like serving up an application for instance, and you have like interesting query patterns. 
Um, so I, I think the thing I would say is like, still it, it matters how you write the data out. I think one way to get into trouble is to try to do a data lake architecture and not think about how you're writing that data and how it might change over time. That can kind of be a mess. So that's and, the issue oh, yeah. of semantics, right? That for me, the transformations are a representation of what the data actually means. So if like, I, I see a data in the lake warehouse, whatever is like, well, what does that actually mean? The, re, the, the semantics, the foundation of that is that transformation. And the thing is that this transformations usually get lost in some scripts or it's in some proprietary SIS tool or some bright Python people did. I think what I really like is about DBT is that because you're building everything on SQL, right? You, you're using that, declare, you have a declarative language to create these mappings, right? For me, all these transformations are just rules and rules are mappings and, and mappings are queries and so forth. It's all the same. And that's what really defines the semantics for that. But one of the things I do worry about is that how much of, the, how much of work is being reinvented? Uh, so how many people are doing transformations over and over again? One. And how, much of the, how many of them are actually slightly different to the point that the semantics are different? They, I look at the column or the table and the names are the same, but in reality, they are not the same. They mean different things because the transformations that were used to go build that, those mappings, we don't know where they, what they really are, right? I think, so how, how do you manage all these things when you have a bunch of transformations, a bunch of people too? Because this is people work. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I think that it, the way you described it feels like a big problem. The thing I'm trying to reconcile is that it doesn't feel like a big problem in our organization or to the people that I speak to that use DBT. Not that it's not really? a, an intractable problem, but like DBT is intended to, in fact, solve that exact problem. It kind of is like the thesis, right? So the way we think about it is that the source data loaded into a warehouse, we call it source conformed. And so it's in whatever format your application uh, emitted it. If you're ingesting data from your application database, maybe it's like SAS data, like say it's ad, ad spend data, whatever it might be. That data is going to be a shape that your source produces it in. And your source doesn't know anything about your business. Your source mm -hmm. knows about like ads or your application or whatever. It's, the, it's an application-centric database, right? The, totally. data, the source is there to go run for the application, not for your business. So when I think about when I think about this, this sort of transformations that folks do, it's about taking that source data and mapping it into the language of the organization. And so for us, we talk about um, clients like DBT cloud accounts we, we call clients or accounts. Um, it has a different name for legacy reasons uh, when we adjust it out of our application database, but like nobody outside of the engineering team knows that name or knows about the tables and their schemas. Um, we want to think about things in terms of just say accounts. Um, so it's actually that process of really defining what you mean by your sort of informal language. Like when I'm talking to some of my team about um, self-service accounts. What we mean is uh, accounts in DBT Cloud that are um, on the, the team tier in DBT Cloud or the developer tier. So you're like paying as you go, it's 50 bucks per user per month if you're on the team tier, free for one user if you're on the developer tier. When I say self-service accounts, we sort of mean like a very specific thing. And that's the language that we used to talk about in our business. And you can drill into that and you can understand what, what is a self-service account? What do we mean by this sort of definition of, of like a data set ultimately or, or a concept? And um, the thing about DBT is you get to define that logic in SQL. You can document it, you can test it. And 
then there becomes a place where you can look and say like this is what we're saying an account is this is how we define it yeah you're trying, you're trying yeah. to take the uh the business language and allow it to live in in sort of this this much more effective and sort of reusable form right and and i feel like this goes back to a comment that you just made a little earlier around sort of the people and 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 sort of the people doing this changing a little bit um, you know, y'all talk about at, at DBT, this idea of the analytics engineer, obviously, uh, folks like data engineers are becoming much of a bigger role in different organizations. Does the shape of the people involved in this process change a lot of what's happening now? And, and especially, is that another factor that kind of gives rise to DBT? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to give you a wacky example just cause it's the one that always jumps in my mind first. Um, my partner works at a hospital here in Philadelphia. And um, there's a data team at the hospital. And when she needs requests about, so she's, okay, she's a pharmacist. She's a special type of pharmacist called an infectious disease pharmacist. And um, the way she operates, she works with doctors who want to prescribe the hardest core antibiotics for like any ailment at all, just to make sure that they kill the bug, right? And so the problem with that is if you do that all the time, you breed antibiotic resistant bacteria and you have like a big problem. And so it's her job to say, like, do you really need that antibiotic or could we use this antibiotic instead? Um, so she has to run these queries every now and then and figure out um, how many times do we prescribe this antibiotic for, um, you know, this infection over the past six months and who do we give it to and in what dosage? So she'll make a request like that of the centralized analytics team. And we'll say, okay, okay, we'll get you a data set. And they come back six weeks later with an Excel spreadsheet that, like, is totally inscrutable. Like, the columns don't make any sense. There's no sense of provenance. And more often than not, it doesn't actually answer the problem at hand and the moment has passed. So what we started doing was we did SQL Sundays for a couple of weeks in a row where I started teaching her how to write SQL and we spun up like a SQL server instance on my laptop so she could get familiar with like how to write SQL so that she could just plug into the database, run these queries herself. And to me, that feels like sort of the exemplar case of the analytics engineer to be. I think she's got a little further we haven't gotten to get yet, but like, I know she can get it. Um, but it's that path of like, you have all the domain knowledge, like, you know how to formulate the question, you know how to validate data sets and you can like, look at it and say, no, 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 we're missing something obvious. Like I would expect to see this data point. It's not here. Or this is way too low. This is way too high. And so it's really to me about the domain knowledge and it's such a good crystallization of it. It's like, yeah, pharmacists should be able to run the queries to get pharmacy data. And like the person doing this modeling should probably be a pharmacist. So th this brings up a couple of things. One is um, the notion that I've been talking a lot about called a knowledge scientist. And for me, the knowledge scientist is somebody who has more of those generic type of capabilities and they're not domain specific. And I think what you're talking about, like this analytics engineer, they're more about, I know the domain, but I also know kind of more, I'm more technical. I want to touch on that, but I also want to, this is also brings up to the, the very hot topic going on right now about data mesh. I want to chat about data mesh in a second, but so is it, is it a valid expectation to think that we're going to have folks who know the domain to become technically technical sa technically savvy enough to actually go do stuff with the data? Or what I believe, and this is what I'm pushing, is like this whole knowledge, the knowledge scientist, which is the person who is able to go understand a business, right? I'm, I may not know pharmacy, but I know how to ask questions and extract things from them. I'm a people person in that aspect, but I'm also a geek and I can go talk to the data folks and go present things around. And then when I believe I got enough information, let me go present it to that pharmacist and then go kind of get that, get that feedback and then I can translate it back because 
I don't think we're going to get pharmacists to become uh, SQL experts all the time, right? I think it's e I think it's more feasible to say, well, hey, you're a data scientist, or you say you're a data scientist, but you are really spending your 80% of your time cleaning the data when cleaning the data really is not just, oh, there's extra spaces in, trans in date transformation. It's like, try and understand what this person meant and what this is in the data and represent that in a, in a, in a transformation, which could be in SQL and stuff. So all of this, my rambling here is, I think it's more about having a knowledge scientist, which is not knowing the domain, but who knows how to go work in the domain. And there are people, people persons versus having somebody specific in that domain. Or, or, what are your thoughts about that? I think that's fair. I think um, I, this, this, this is like a, a, a sort of no BS uh, conversation, right? So what I'll say is I, scientists is too grandiose for a lot of what happens. Oh, well, the only reason I'm calling it a knowledge scientist yeah. is because there's already this thing called a data scientist. So we got to sure. keep it up for marketing purposes. But and, and, <laughs> and that's too grandiose. Like so much of it is counting stuff. And if you can just like count stuff effectively, you're in the top 1% of high performing analytics organizations in the world. Like yeah, but most organizations can't effectively count things. And yeah, so often it's, it's, I mean, I think the point you made is so stellar. It's like the hard part a lot of times is understanding how the data is recorded because we see this in our own data. It's like really challenging to make any sort of inference from data, even if you're just counting stuff, unless you appreciate all the context about how those data points got in the warehouse and like when they're tracked versus when they're not tracked and, and for who, and is it on-prem or is it self-service? And it's like, that's such a mess. And that is sort of like a, a almost a research type role. I buy that thing you're saying, but, um, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's domain centric, right? If it's marketing data, you, you need to know a lot about what the marketing strategy is. So I think this is the interesting are. thing about the whole data mesh kind of conversation that's going around, which is like, oh, have your domain, uh, the, the, no, the folks who know the domain, let them be the owners of the data. And I think you'll have a data team for that domain and then you'll be able to go have folks who will be those uh, analytics engineers who know the domain. But my other thought, I was talking to somebody else the other day is like, well, people wanna go probably hop around, the, hop around an organization, right? So otherwise I'm just stuck in this particular domain. So I think it's also an interesting kind of career choice where, where you go yeah. with it. Well, so we have a, uh, I think a data team of exactly one person uh, today. Um, given that a lot of us are familiar with analytics, we have a big emphasis on self-service. We like write our own models. Um, um, the thing we're really trying to lean into is one of the things that a lot of people in the DBT community talk about. It's providing data as a product and not as a service. And so we have a centralized data team and there's sort of a partnership model with different parts of the business. And we try to be really careful about the asks that we make of, you know, I'm going to say the data team, it's one person today. Um, but the ask that we make and how we ask them and, and when she says, yes, I would love to help you with that. Or when she says, um, that's not something we can help with right now because we're building this sort of product to serve this particular use case. And so I think in that model, there's a real opportunity for you to be like, it's like design, you know, we have, we have a design team and there are product designers that work on specific products. There are folks that work on a sort of component library that's shared across every product. And it really feels like the same thing for data. Like sometimes you need to be working on the sort of centralized core thing itself and making sort of platform investments. And other times you're going out and doing more like feature development and like solving one particular problem or helping someone solve one particular problem. I think that creates the opportunity for variety and sort of day-to-day -day work. So Drew, uh, you know, I know that 
we've talked about some of these different roles. We've talked about uh, sort of the role of SQL and and how that's a key part of of what DBT is kind of building around. Um, you know, how do you think about other types of either languages like Python or things like that, um, or, you know, non-SQL sources, right? You know, maybe this starts to get into the future of DBT a little bit. Like, how do you think about sort of the broader data landscape as it relates to transformation? Yeah, I, I got my start <laughs> in, in seventh grade uh, writing Python, um, <laughs> um, uh, making a, a Python 101 calculator, um, one plus one equals two. Um, <laughs> that was that was a lot of fun. I love I love Python. Um, it's because of Python that I can say, with all the goodwill and charity, that it like really is very bad for this data transformation type of of problem. Like when I see people doing lots of pandas stuff in Jupyter notebooks, and they like, I saw a talk once at a conference. It was like, here's how you can run notebooks on a schedule to do your nightly ETL. Here's how we scaled it out to the entire very large organization. I just kept going like, yeah, no, 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 no. Then you're trying to go, re re I mean, that's the semantics, right? The meaning of this data ends up is being hidden in some code that is not even documented. In yeah. That, uh, Drew, I, I have a lot of uh, Pythonista friends and they're crying right now from what you just said. Yeah. And listen, I, <laughs> I, was, an, I was an R hater for a while. Like I used R in college and I thought this doesn't work how I think programming languages should work. And I hate it. But um, I can appreciate that there's, a, from my perspective, actually a lot more, let me say like consistency in how people solve a lot of these problems with R than there is mm -hmm. at all in Python. And Python just continues to feel to me like, um, uh, um, like the Wild West for a lot of this work. Are you, are you it, saying yeah. that all transformations should now be in, like all data should be tabular and all transformations should be in SQL? Well, okay, here's, here's really what it comes down to. And this is one of the sort of big challenges is when we think about communicating the value of DBT to people or your first experience using DBT. Like you need a warehouse, you need a data loader that's constantly loading data into the warehouse and you need some sort of BI or analytics uh, uh, like capacity. Because if you're doing like a, a dinky demo of like data transformation, you get a CSV file, you have like a Jupyter notebook and you're like, look, I ran the notebook and then it spit out this different CSV. But the reality is when you're doing BI or analytics or, you know, even like data science almost feels different to me. And we can talk about that more if it's interesting. But like when you're solving these BI and analytics problems, it's really just like count stuff correctly over time as the data changes. Um, and so to me, SQL is so beautiful because it's declarative and you just say, this is what I want the data set to look like. And then it, and then it looks like that. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't do that in Python. You absolutely can do that in Python. It doesn't mean you can't do it in R. You absolutely can. People do with a lot of success. I just think SQL is like a very elegant way of doing that. That's a successful really, to many. yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. I haven't really thought of that way. Sort of like, uh, I, I wrote down here, like analytics pipeline versus more of your true sort of data science pipeline. I think that maybe in recent years, you know, especially with the advent of like Spark and things like that, right? You see a lot of, conflating those two things, right? Like ML, AI, BI, oh, they're all two-letter acronyms, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. It, it makes so, me think about, oh, well, go ahead. No, I was going to say that the, the reason why you like SQL is because of declarative, and that's why you want to go write these transformations. And I 100% agree with you on that. But I think it's, 
we should abstract it more. It's like, we need to have is declarative languages to go do these transformations, right? So we just not, not have a programming languages and just be declarative about that. And, but then it's like, what is, can you do everything in SQL? No. So what mm. is the next thing? What is, what is, what, what are the, the different types of languages? I mean, and not to get too academic in here, but I think like data log is like the ideal uh, transformation language over there. Right? Like, honestly, I mean, if you look at any single query language or rules language, I mean, data log is a rule language, right? You can, I mean, in, 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 in database theory, we always compare the expressive powers by, by, reducing it to data log and see, oh, mine, this is relational algebra is non-recursive data log plus negation, right? Uh, so, is, what's, what's prolog? Is prolog like data log? No, 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 no. Data prolog. log comes after prolog. So prolog okay. is logic programming languages, and then data log is a subset of prolog, right? Data log. Yeah. Well, okay. Here's, here's what I would point to primarily. Um, I think that SQL is accessible to many in a way that arbitrarily complex Python is, is not. I can't speak to data log personally, but what I can tell you is the really wonderful thing about SQL is that it works in a client server model and you don't need a runtime on your personal machine where you do development to execute it. Mm -hmm. And so a really big challenge with getting DBT out into the world is that Python environments are bad. And like Mac Python environments by default are especially bad. And Windows Python environments, I don't want to talk about because I'm going to need to like refresh my drink if we're going to, if we're going to talk about it. <laughs> so like... That to me is, is really the other half that's really important about SQL. It's like, you don't need the runtime on your computer. And I can tell you that some of the developments happening in and around the data warehousing space point in the direction of like, you writing code in a language that's not SQL, that still gets run on a data warehouse somewhere else with like scalable hardware. I guess the other thing is like, if you're doing a, a transformation on a terabyte of data, it really is not fun to download a terabyte of data, transform it on your machine, and then put it back in the database. That's the cool thing about SQL is you can tell the database, like, just go do this, please. If you do that with Python or R and you have, like, good conventions around how you write that code, I suddenly have a very small, I, I suddenly don't have a problem with it anymore, you know? Okay. Well, I think, so I, I'm still kind of concerned here that the, that the world will just, well, I don't know. It's not that a concern that the world just will be SQL and that's it. Because I'm like right now we're seeing this big popularity about graphs, and that's that's my personal background, right? We want to go do all these transformations from relational to graph, right? And yeah, we could use SQL for that. But then we're doing from graphs to another graphs, and then graphs to relational. We're starting to see all these different data models. I mean, JSON. Like, how do you go deal with, do transformations using a, APIs JSON and stuff? I mean, I guess you you put them all in a in Snowflake and you can go query this together, right? So. I mean, that, it's a non-issue in Snowflake. I think other databases have more mixed support for like unstructured data. But um, the other thing I point to is like, you know, recursive CTEs, you can like traverse a DAG in Snowflake now, I think. Um, it's something that Postgres could do for, for kind of a long time. Um, I think the set of things that you, if we're talking about like should versus can, the set of things that you can address in SQL is growing to be most of the types of things I would care about in the transformation capacity should remains an interesting question that okay. we could talk about, yeah. Perfect, that's the quote here. You can do a bunch of stuff in SQL. The question is, should you do this all in SQL? But I think I think probably just from this conversation, the, the bar of things that you should do is actually pretty pretty dang high in my opinion. And I, I maybe get the sense that you're placing the bar a little bit lower, which is fair, that can be like a personal preference thing. And like, 
no, uh, but no. I do. There's a lot you can do in SQL. No, actually, I think if 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 your source is a relational database, you should do everything in SQL, and you can do everything in SQL, and you should do everything in SQL. My point is when, oh, I don't have my source is not a SQL. It is, it is a it is JSON. It is XML. It is a graph. It is some other uh, other object oriented type of database. Whatever. It's like okay, so then we go transform it into relational. So I can do it into SQL, right? Well, but so that's. That's sort of like a solved problem, in my opinion, because there's all these data loading tools or paradigms. Um, if you use like just say Fivetran or a tool like that, it, it, you can just slurp the data out of whatever source and load it into Snowflake in a sort of, in the worst case, it's a single column that has an XML blob in it. And I'm pretty sure Snowflake has capabilities to, you know, parse out an XML blob. And like, is that fun to do? No, I don't think that's fun to do. But does it make more sense to do that sort of on read versus on write in, in SQL instead of Python? Like maybe we could have Oh, no, no. So, so I, I'm completely with you though. Like it's definitely okay. on read, you want to do it, but I'm just like, maybe not SQL is a thing. Like if you have an XML thing, maybe you want to go use an XML, like X query or something. I'm not hmm. stating to go do that. I'm just like, the point is it's like the whole world is just SQL. And, and I've already seen some comment here in the chat. SQL is a universal language of data. Okay. Well, I think we'll have some interesting conversations in, in, in the live chat after this. Yeah. By the way, uh, I told you 30 minutes fly by. Look at this. It's really quick. <laughs> we got more to talk about, but yeah. let, let's, uh, let's, wrap, let's wrap it up with some takeaways. Uh, Tim, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, there's been a lot of great takeaways here. Um, I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about is this sort of distinction of the analytics pipeline and sort of what you're doing to power, like what you said, Drew, like the sort of the, you know, you've got, you're constantly loading data into the warehouse. You've got this BI tool, you know, you want like a really uh, sort of declarative and predictable and reliable way to approach that. Um, and it seems like the SQL based approach is really powerful there. And you think about sort of your data science paradigm um, as being connected to that, but, potentially that's where some of the additional tooling comes to play. So it's got me thinking a little bit about like smart architecture choices and how things like DBT come to play to, to help you make um, uh, some slightly different choices than maybe was sort of buzzworthy a couple of years ago. And I think this is moving in the right direction. So that, that I think that's one of my big takeaways here. So I got a couple of takeaways. One is um, yeah. Transformations, they need to be declarative. We need to stop using Python or a program language for declarative, the, the, the writing transformation. So that's key. And that's what I love about DBT. And then I'm, I really find this interesting about the whole kind of analytics engineer and how like you have folks who are kind of your, they do their analysis, they know the domain, they kind of know already a bit of SQL or they, or they can learn it. They should be the folks who are doing those transformations. And, and, and I kind of see the balance of, is it, is, is it that type of analytics engineer who actually knows a domain or what I've been calling this knowledge scientist who can adapt to different domains? I think that's something interesting trade-off. And then I like this question is, uh, you can do a bunch of stuff in SQL. The question is, should you? But the bar is already pretty high. So, well, to wrap up, Drew, two questions. One, what's your advice? Yes, very broad, open question. And second, who should we invite next? Yeah, um, I'd still have really good a 10 foot long USB cable for charging your phone. It's changed my life. You know, I, I sit in bed, I look at Twitter and, and then, you know, I don't have to move to, uh, to make sure it's charging. That's a really um, good piece of advice. That's yeah, it's so the key to I'm gonna success. I'm going to hop on Amazon business. right now and, and yeah. buy one. <laughs> no, no, like less than 10 bucks. I can, it's just so recommended. Um, yeah. Um, 
check out DBT if you haven't heard of it before. If you like it, uh, I'd love to talk to you about it. If you're not a fan or you feel differently, I'd like to hear your opinion too. Uh, I think the person you should invite next, uh, we sort of skirted around this a little bit, but I, I'm really interested in a lot of the heat in the orchestration world. Um, bit of a mis, uh, misconception. People think that DBT and Airflow or tools like it are, are competitive, but like I really don't think that's the case. Um, I think they work well together. So I, I'd recommend um, maybe something like Dagster or um, Prefect or um, some of the other folks uh, out, out there kind of thinking about orchestration. I, I'll tell you one name, um, Nick Schrock from Dagster is a, is a good person. He might be interested to have on. Awesome. Well, Nick, if you're listening, or we're going to definitely send you the podcast, you're on call. I hope to see yeah. you here. Great suggestions well, there. Just a quick reminder, uh, on March 25th, we're going to have our Data World Summit at 11 o'clock Central. We got speakers from Snowflake, from Booz Allen, from LinkedIn, from Fivetran, from the Zebra Data Kitchen, and also Fishtown Analytics. And also next week, we have a fantastic episode also with uh, Michael Murray, who's the president, and Brett Harper, the CDO of Wonderman Thompson Data, where we're going to be talking about Identity Graph, the new customer 360. Drew, thank you so much. Cheers, Drew. Thanks for having me on. Cheers for uh, DBT and five years and uh, for having declarative transformation. Declarative. Oh, I, yeah, I, I thought we were already drinking. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Cheers to that. Thanks. Cheers. Get TV, get dbt.com open source. So it's, it's not salesy. It's open source. Open source. <laughs> All right. Cheers y'all.